This is Macro Horizons, episode 83, Jackson Hole-in-One, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of August 24th. And as we ponder just how much Powell will reveal about the Fed's upcoming framework change, we can't help but wonder if one can steal their own thunder. Well, maybe Zeus can. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The week just passed was a fascinating one in the Treasury market for a number of reasons, not least of which being the attempt to reprice Treasury yields higher appears to have run its course, and the market once again is drifting back into a very well-established range. This range includes 10-year yields at roughly 60 basis points. Not particularly compelling. However, if we look at the price action in other markets, what we see is record high equity prices established in the S&P 500 yet again, and a persistent outperformance of risk assets. Now, we've been on about how a lot of the upside in risk assets has been predicated on an extremely easy monetary policy stance, and that's what makes the reaction to Wednesday's FOMC minutes release so perplexing. We did see a disappointment initial trade because the Fed wasn't perceived to be quite as dovish as the market was anticipating. That said, the Fed has done a very good job in breaking down the next three potential moves into distinct policy events. So we have the framework shift, which is expected to be announced in September with some of the details potentially coming out at Jackson Hole. Beyond that, there is the firming up of forward guidance. It remains to be seen whether or not that is an outcome-based or a calendar-based guidance. If anything, we're erring on the side of it being the former rather than the latter. And then there's the potential, if the economic outlook devolves enough, that we could see the Fed venture into a yield curve cap environment. Again, Not on the radar for 2020, but it's something that the Fed would be remiss to completely take off the table at this point, comparable to the way that they have dismissed the notion that the Fed would ever venture into negative policy rates. Another telling aspect of the market's reaction function at this stage was the weakest reception to a 30-year tips auction on record. The magnitude of the tail or the concession at auction really brought into question whether or not market participants are really worried about the reflationary implications from all of the stimulus currently being put into the system. We've long struggled with how to truly interpret the results of TIPS auctions, but given the higher than expected inflation, both PPI and CPI seen 
last week, the lack of interest in buying inflation protection is telling and is, if nothing else, at least directionally consistent with the bullish flattening that continues to play out in the Treasury market. We also saw an important shift in sentiment on the business side. Manufacturing in the U.S., disappointment from both the Philadelphia Fed and the Empire State, and then in Europe, the PMIs also almost universally underperformed. Now, this is very telling as the summer continues to come to an end and expectations for a true V-shaped recovery are put to bed. The fact of the matter is that the increase in COVID-19 cases has materially weighed on economic expectations for the balance of the year. So one of the biggest themes of this week, at least in terms of the price action, was a little bit of a bullish retracement from the sell-off we saw last week. In the wake of the 10 and 30 year refundings, as well as some stronger than expected inflation and employment data, there was at least a chance we were going to see higher yields. But alas, 72 basis points in tens was all we got. And this week has seen a pretty steady grind lower in rates. Yeah, Ben, we're now at roughly 62 basis points in 10-year yields. And that does speak to at least the relevance of the strategy of coming out of the auction process long. Not an exciting stance and one that's been around for quite some time, but once again, with 10s and 30s solidly in the money at this point, the conventional wisdom seems to hold for the time being. One of the more subtle macro shifts that we saw occur this week came via the FOMC minutes. I think that this is worth highlighting because expectations were that the Fed would, in relatively short order, change the monetary policy framework, i.e. start focusing on an average year-over-year inflation target, and firm up the forward guidance. Whether it is outcome-based or calendar-based remains to be seen. The takeaway from the minutes was that the framework change is coming. Presumably, we'll learn more about that next week via Jackson Hole. But the urgency for firming up the forward guidance doesn't seem to be in line with what the market was expecting. And so what we saw was a bull flattening of the Treasury curve. So there are two parts of this, at least in my thinking. The first aspect of it is that a dovish shift in monetary policy lowers the path of future policy rate expectations and with it drags down the 10 and 30 year sector of the curve. That should be the initial price response. The second order is that eventually the perception is that that will translate through to inflationary pressures, which would have the opposite effect on the longer end of the curve. And what's striking to me is we have only seen that initial trade i.e. lower yields in the longer end of the curve. Now, part of that is consistent with the seasonality. Part of that is consistent with the ongoing increase in COVID-19 cases. Part of that also surely takes into account the dimming economic outlook as we think about the fourth quarter and beyond. Ian, one thing I found very interesting looking at the price reaction to the minutes is that it actually came across somewhat as a hawkish interpretation and not hawkish in the sense that the Fed is trying to tighten financial conditions, but more in that real rates rose 
or inflation-adjusted rates rose after the minutes and break-evens fell. Now, normally that's a type of consideration of less growth, less inflationary pressure going forward. Of course, the complicating factor here is that we had tips supply the following day. So one could also partially explain the price action just by saying, okay, now that the minutes are out of the way, the market had to set up for 30-year tip supply, and that meant a bit of concession in real yield space and an artificial temporary compression of break-evens. Whether that trend extends into the coming week, I think we'll be telling as to how successful the FOMC will be about communicating that lower path, higher inflationary pressure that you laid out. That's a great point, John. And I'll also be curious to see exactly how much information and how detailed the chair will be at Jackson Hole, because there's a very real possibility that if Powell chooses to go in depth and outline all the details that went into the thinking and the framework shift, that the market will logically be led to what that change is going to be, and to some extent, still the proverbial thunder from the September FOMC meeting. So what we might see is that Jackson Hole is actually the most relevant tradable event as it relates to the framework shift, and then for harder forward guidance, we'll have to wait until November or beyond. In terms of what to expect from the actual framework shift, I would just say that this has been a long time coming. Fed officials have been telegraphing that some type of framework shift has been in development for a long time. They recognize that they've underperformed a bit on their inflation mandate on average over the past decade. And with low neutral real rates, they really just need to figure out a way to communicate that they're going to keep rates lower for longer. Now that translates into a lower, flatter nominal path, and all else equal, this pivot should lead to higher break-evens. And in a lot of ways, that's already been priced into the curve. You know, we had a pretty sloppy 30-year tips auction this past week, but it also stopped out at negative 27 basis points. So the federal government just borrowed money at negative real yields for three decades. The market's obviously priced in some version of this Fed evolution already. My big question, and I think you and I are in agreement here, is will Powell go above and beyond what people are expecting? Will he simply meet? Or will he be a little bit more reticent to deeply commit to a new framework? And it's especially complicated given how uncertain the macro backdrop is. You know, if they've spent years studying the modern U.S. economy and then COVID hits, it's not obvious that what might have been appropriate in 2018, 2019 will still really be appropriate in 2020 and 2021. And another important theme out of the minutes was what wasn't hinted at with great urgency, and that was yield curve control. Earlier this year, particularly in the worst months of the recession, yield curve control was something that was pretty frequently discussed among market participants. But the fact that we're seeing a growing reluctance on the part of monetary policymakers to rush that out the door definitely doesn't take it off the table as a future policy tool. But what it does do, and I think this played into the market reaction to the release, is leave it in reserve as the next potential lever to pull in the event the Fed needs to step up again and do more again. 
And when we think about the path for the recovery of the U.S. economy and if and when the Fed will decide that they need to do more, I think that the fourth quarter is going to be very telling for economic sentiment as well as the shifts in the employment landscape. One of the other key takeaways from the week just passed was that the anticipated decline in the initial jobless claims figures actually resolved in a 1.1 million print. So that was a slight increase. And it speaks to the idea that the stabilization in the weekly claims figures isn't going to happen below 500,000. And it looks like somewhere around the million jobs per week mark might be the new norm. And that to me is deeply concerning. You know, when we think about claims, we have a stock and a flow variable. So we get continuing claims. That's the overall people drawing on unemployment. And then initial claims is new people entering into the system. With an economy that's supposedly starting to recover, you would expect that the flow would be trickling off at this point. The fact that it's stabilizing north of 500,000, north of a million, really doesn't bode well for the near or even medium-term trajectory of this recovery. And I think it also reflects a lot of the dislocation that has occurred, not only the baseline damage that's been done to the service sector and all the uncertainty surrounding the reopening and what the new norm will look like, but this has also been a litmus test for the work-from-home framework. Now, I, for one, went into this process thinking that the lockdown would be relatively short-lived, we would be back to the office in short order, and we would very quickly put this episode behind us. And the fact of the matter is that a large portion of the labor force is now comfortably working from home, and that has implications for the major metropolitan centers. So setting aside the commercial real estate argument, setting aside what it means for the bid up in real estate for the suburbs, even from a baseline employment perspective, the reshuffling and retooling of the support services for those big metropolitan areas, think entertainment, restaurants, etc., implies that the transition back towards some version of full employment is going to take much, much longer. And over that longer term perspective, one idea I've been grappling with is okay, we're seeing a dramatic reshaping of how people work, where people work. Now, one of the well-documented things for the neutral rate of interest, and therefore kind of the long-run dot or heavy guidance for, say, 10 or 30-year treasuries, is potential growth. Now, one of the big inputs for potential growth is productivity. So to tie this all together, how does the shift to working from home or more remote working impact productivity? One could kind of take both sides of this argument right now. You could say, well, because we don't have to commute, we can put in an extra half an hour, hour per day. Maybe fewer distractions at the office allow for more productive output in certain sectors of the economy, less in others. On the other hand, there are network effects. There are benefits to being in the office. Information flows faster. You're forced to focus better. So one thing over the long run, and I don't think we can have an answer to this just yet, is will the reshaping of the office environment lead to either a productivity spike, in which case that's a bearish evolution for the back end of the curve, or a further productivity drag? This would be something like we saw in the 2010s where productivity underwhelmed, growth underwhelmed, 
and rates stayed lower for longer, especially more than the forecast we're projecting back in 2010, 2011, 2012. There is also an aspect of it that increases productivity and the bottom line, at least on the corporate level, and that is that firms are pushing a lot of the expenses to the employee in terms of having and maintaining an office, for example. So if firms can save money with less office space, obviously implications for commercial real estate, but that in and of itself could function as a productivity enhancing event. There's also another facet to this, Ian, that you've brought up in the past, and that is on the jobs landscape as a whole, how the adjustment in back-to-school schedules may weigh on people's ability or willingness to return to work versus what might have been expected in a traditional year. I think all three of us are in agreement that even if the school year gets underway successfully, there's a non-zero risk that later in the autumn, another pickup in the pandemic could inspire schools to be closed back down, kids sent home, and everything that implies from a parental perspective. And I certainly don't think this is the most consequential variable in determining whether people get back to work or not, but it is something else to consider in the background at the very least. Well, there's also the perception of safety. So if we look at what has happened with some of the universities that have already tried to bring in-person learning back to campus and subsequently had to shut down, I would expect that firms and other sectors of the economy that don't necessarily need to have workers in the office will take a cue from that, and that will lengthen the runway for a return to traditional office work, if and when that ever occurs. And in the vein of getting back to work, one of the most interesting things I read over the past week regarded a potential vaccine. It seems that polling of American adults, even if there is a vaccine, there's kind of a reticence to go out and get it, at least yet. There's a concern that a potential vaccine would be rushed through and on the safety point might not be fully safe. So at least according to this one poll, something around 40% of U.S. adults say they're likely to get the vaccine. That's actually below what would be needed for herd immunity. How would this impact the trajectory of the recovery if we do actually get a vaccine, but not enough people are willing to take it to establish herd immunity? Would that reopen things to back to where they were before? Or does that leave us in this awkward kind of lockdown, kind of not, where we move to the second order development on the vaccine, which is adoption and widespread use? There's also the underlying question of how aggressive governments might be in requiring vaccinations for certain things. So I could envision a situation where a vaccination would be a requirement for certain activities. For example, international travel. That wouldn't strike me as surprising, probably not being led out of the U.S., but it does complicate matters. And then people would need to make a decision about the payoffs one direction or another. And I think that that would certainly complicate the road to an economic recovery and slow it, if nothing else. And you mentioned international travel, but that logic could spread to a lot of other places. You could see office buildings require, if you want to go back to work in an urban center, you need to have an immunization. Similar, if you want to send your kids back to school. I think from a behavioral perspective, this is going to be incredibly important as to how effective a vaccine is at restarting the economy. And regardless of how the effectiveness of the vaccine itself or policies around it play out, what this does do is, once again, elongate the time of the recovery. 
And as we've talked about numerous times, introducing more time into the equation is really what's dangerous for the corporate sector, especially with the uncertainty around further fiscal support. The longer that some of the most susceptible industries, restaurants come to mind, have to sustain on drastically reduced revenues, the more bankruptcies we'll ultimately end up seeing, the greater risk of another round of layoffs, and just generally speaking, the greater the economic pain. So I completely agree with you both. This will be one of the crucial things to watch in Q4 and Q1, presumably when we start to see meaningful progress on the usage of a vaccine. So what you're saying is there's really a lot of reasons to be optimistic this fall. Well, at the very minimum, I'm looking forward to seeing what Powell's Zoom background is for his presentation this week. One thing's for sure, it'll be a Jackson Hole in one. The week ahead has a variety of important economic indicators, as well as the Kansas City Feds Symposium, i.e. Jackson Hole, where Powell is expected to outline some of the upcoming changes to the Fed's framework. In terms of the data, the key highlights are durable goods and personal spending for the month of July. As it currently stands, at least according to the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now tracker, the third quarter appears to be on course to see a roughly 25% bounce in real GDP. Now, part of that is simply a function of the base effects from the massive hit to real growth that we saw in the second quarter, and it will surely be accompanied by some calls for the V-shaped recovery to continue into the end of the year. Obviously, the election matters to some extent, although given the importance of vaccine and people's willingness to use it, we expect that the vast majority of the direction of financial markets is going to be a function of the progression of the pandemic, regardless of who ends up in the White House. Our current read is that the outright level of rates, as well as the continued outperformance in the equity market, would probably be driven by, call it, 85 to 90% what happens with a vaccine and the potential for its uptake. That means that that incremental 10 to 15% could be a function of whether Biden wins or Trump retains the White House. But at the end of the day, we actually don't expect to see any of that positioning occur until much closer to the event itself. Imagine a situation in which one assumes that Biden would be bad for risk assets, it's probably not the most prudent strategy to start selling the S&P 500 at this point, given the potential for a viable vaccine to materially reprice risk assets higher. This implies a couple things. One is it implies a continued uninspired range trade in the treasury market, at least for the next several weeks. And it also leads us to believe that the fourth quarter is going to be a particularly fall to one, both in equities and in the treasury market. We continue to anticipate a bearish outcome in Q4 for treasuries, although we'll be the first to concede that a lot of that is predicated on some type of vaccine successfully making it through phase three trials. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as we continue to noodle on life's persistent questions, we find ourselves considering whether or not one can truly be considered late to the office when working from home. Ben. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. 
please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.